0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 67. How well do you know your software supply chain? When you pip install a package, what steps can you take to minimize the risk of installing something malicious? This week on the show, we have Dustin Ingram, a director of the Python Software Foundation and a maintainer of the Python Package Index. We talk about Dustin's PyCon 2021 talk titled Secure Software Supply Chains for Python. Dustin shares the types of attacks you should be aware of and how you can make your supply chain more trustworthy. We cover tools, techniques, and best practices. Dustin also discusses what it takes to keep the Python package index running and the players working to keep it going into the future. This week's episode is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading-edge application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues before the customer ever sees them. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Dustin. Hey, Chris. It's so cool to have you come on the show. I'm very excited by what I saw of your talk at PyCon 2021. Awesome.
1: I'm really glad you enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. I kind of want to take a step and just talk a little bit about you wear a lot of different hats doing lots of different jobs. Part of that is working at Google. And can you talk a little bit about what what you do currently at Google?
1: Yeah. So I'm a developer advocate at Google. And I think, you know, developer relations takes on a lot of different meanings across different organizations. For a lot of people, they sort of perceive it as like this external evangelism where I'm going and I'm talking to you about our products. I'm trying to convince you to use them. And I do do that to an extent, but the majority of my job is actually sort of being an expert on some Python-related things and other things internally at Google so that when we build products for our customers, for developers, uh, we build them right. So, you know, I sort of step into the the process of developing new products or deciding how we're going to add features, that kind of thing, and evaluate them on behalf of the Python community, advocate for the things the Python community needs, and then you know, help influence the product
0: in that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That that need for sort of explaining <laughs> the ecosystem to this very large organization. Like, okay, well, these are the kinds of things people are looking for, and what they need, and I can see that that need inside of an organization.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not just that. You know, in, in, in any organization, that's probably necessary, but I think it's especially true at Google because you know we have so much. It's a bit like a bubble, right? We have so much internal tooling, and we do. So many things differently than, you know, the the rest of the like idiomatic ecosystem does things that like our, our engineers that are developing our products, they really actually don't know know, their processes are not the same as the average cloud developer or Python developer. So they really do need that information.
0: Yeah. I had Brett Slatkin on very early on the podcast and he was talking about, you know, creating a lot of those tools internally and his love of, of Python for, developing infrastructure and so forth. So I, I, it's always kind of fun to talk to different individuals from these companies and see them. But how do you see like customers, like the people that you're advocating for, what are the types of tools that they're using inside of Google with with Python?
1: Yeah, I mean, our Python runtimes for our serverless products are hugely popular. Like we have a, a Python runtime for Cloud Functions, which is like, you know, function as a service type of thing. Yeah, We still have a really... Cool product that I love and I think it's underrated, which is Cloud Run, which is basically like run a container uh, with an HTTP server inside it as a service, and our, you know, customers can really do anything they want inside those containers. But Python is is fairly popular there.
0: Nice, yeah. You are also uh, a director at the PSF, and maybe you can describe a little bit of what you're what you're doing there, and maybe a little of your history too, because I, I just recently talked to uh, Marlene yeah. on Gami and she was telling me a lot about. The things that she's doing in her recent sort of uh, connection to the PSF, also. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I like to um, like you know reiterate that I am a director of the PSF, not the director.
0: You're right. thankful get that confused
1: a little bit, right? So there's actually 11 of us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I was elected to the board a year ago. We serve three-year terms on the board, and uh, you know it's it's not a paid position. We're all volunteers, but we're generally responsible for overseeing the direction of the Python Software Foundation and ensuring that it's upholding its mission to like, you know, ensure that Python exists, continues to exist, and remains popular and is well-supported.
0: Nice. And kind of in that role, do you have a lot of duties that you need to, to do for big events like PyCon?
1: Well, not so much. I mean, we do a monthly board meeting where we sort of decide on making a vote on decisions based on what the organization needs to do. For things like PyCon, you know, we do member meetings. That's an important part. Uh, it's just outreach, making sure people are aware that the PSF exists and that they can become members, and you know what the PSF does to support the ecosystem. Like a lot of people don't know that PyPI is basically entirely supported and run by the, the Python Software Foundation. So we meet with folks uh, at events like PyCon, talk to them. And then, you know, just generally, you know, representing different parts of our communities. Marlene, for example, has done an excellent job uh, representing, you know, all of the uh, growing Python developer community in Africa.
0: Yeah, whole continent. (laughs) Yeah, it's
1: it's, amazing. It's a a lot of work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, cool. And so you mentioned it there, but you're also a maintainer for the Python Package Index, PyPI. And how long have you been doing that role, like doing, maintaining with them?
1: Probably since about,
0: I guess, since maybe 2014
1: or 15, somewhere around there. Okay. Yeah, it's actually kind of, that was my like gateway into a Python community. Well, I had you know, done a lot of Python development before, but especially the Python open source community, I it was, it's actually got a bit of a funny story. I was in, living in Philadelphia at the time and I was um, on GitHub and on GitHub, you can like search for, users that you know primarily use a certain language in certain geographic areas so i was like okay i wonder who the like top python users on github are in philadelphia okay and tim graham i uh, was i think maybe still he maybe still lives in philly he uh he was on that list you know pr- uh, someone that works on django a lot and also donald stuffed and, and donald is uh, you know has been working on python packaging stuff for a real long time uh, one of the early maintainers of pip and maintainers of ipi and I found a really interesting project that he was working on on GitHub when I saw his profile. And it was this like brand new re implementation of PyPI. And at the time, PyPI was like a really kind of rundown and beat up and like hard to maintain service. Uh, it had been going for quite a long time. PyPI is one of the oldest like language software repositories.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: It was kind of due to be replaced. So Donald had been working on this and I, you know, It was sort of a prototype, and uh, it was really interesting to me. And so I started trying to contribute to it. And long story short, it eventually became PyPI. So I never really worked on the old PyPI, but after working on this prototype for a while, and us turning that into PyPI itself, became a maintainer of PyPI. Oh,
0: cool. That kind of brings up two questions in my head. You know, I'm fairly new to Python in general. And so to me, it's always been... PyPI and PIP and just like everything, you know, it's just kind of like been there as sort of a infrastructure kind of thing, which is amazing. And then to kind of learn the stories behind it is always really cool. But at the time, were there other uh, tools that people were looking at or other uh, services that were potentially replacing what was PyPI?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, PyPI was a little bit different, actually, at that time like we call it the Python package index, but it really now is a repository, it contains the software itself. But at that time, it was just an index, right? It was like a place where you could go to follow a link to somewhere else that had Python software. So there were like lots of places that were hosting Python software, but it wasn't really standardized. And so eventually, like at some point early in PyPI's history, the maintainers sort of brought all that stuff onto PyPI itself, right? When When you publish something to PyPI, the files the software is actually hosted on on pypi so there was never really i think a competing index okay like i said pypi is you know one of the older software posters. so we, we were sort of ahead of the curve a little bit there but um, but yeah now it's it works out well because it's you know by and large the canonical index for
0: for python that makes sense and then the other is uh this idea of reaching out to people via github um do you did you have a good experience doing that and have, have you followed up from there to say, Hey, uh, I'm interested in this project and, you know, wanting to contribute. Um, it's something that I've been thinking about and, and, you know, sort of like starting to dabble with, but I'm still kind of nervous in the sense of being kind of that intermediate person, like, Oh, you know, you know, am I going to get <laughs> shut down you yeah. know, or whatever? And so like, I don't know what your experience was like. And if you have advice there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think I got incredibly lucky, right? I was sort of just stumbling around and and looking at projects. And, you know, I I don't know if I'd recommend, like, trying to find projects developed in your geographic area. That's not really important, right? But
0: okay, yeah,
1: Donald, you know, Donald was incredibly knowledgeable and a great mentor and very patient. And, you know, really, like, I had this initial spark of interest in the project just because of what it was and that it was a web application that was, like, pretty interestingly designed and complex and so that you know piqued my interest but made me actually want to like reach out was that you know I had sort of well-defined issues that i was like oh okay i see this like chunk of work that needs done and uh, you know don was responsive he was you know help, helpful when i was trying to work on it so yeah I would, I would recommend it
0: yeah cool that that sounds you know the couple other conversations i've had in that sense the the well-defined issues <laughs> really help to define some kind of like chunk that you can take away and and work on as opposed to being like this vast, you know, landscape where you're like, I have no idea where to start.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think the other thing I'd say here is like now as a maintainer, when I file issues, like a lot of times I'll file issues for stuff that maybe it could almost take me the same amount of time to fix it as it would be to file the issue. But, you know, I want to create these issues that are good entry points. But even when I, you know, it it, it would be a lot more work, I'll, I'll file an issue and go into a bit of detail. But, you know, I'd want people to know that, like, an issue is an invitation to have a discussion, right? Just because I've filed this issue doesn't mean that you have to then take what I've written, go away and work on it, and then fix it in a void, right? We can have a conversation on that, you know, issue in public and figure it out together.
0: That's nice. The idea of it being a conversation starter and the idea that, that that's the place the communication should happen is is such a positive kind of <laughs> yeah. idea, which... I feel like sometimes reviewing very often seems to be a a thing that happens in a vacuum or or the communications, you know, feel like they're happening and things are just getting tossed over a wall back and forth. So that's cool. Yeah. So the main reason I was super excited to talk to you was your talk at PyCon 2021, um, where you were talking about kind of developments in packaging, but also about security and kind of ensuring the security of applications that developers create. And it's a common question that had come up in past episodes and kind of feedback that I'd I'd gotten. And I was always trying to think of like, okay, well, how do I wrangle it? And there's lots of different (laughs) vectors to kind of think about as far as security. There's like, uh, I talked to some people about like, authorization and then also like roles of like you know inside of applications but the part that we've always kind of danced around and kind of just kind of touched on as far as articles and other things has been this idea of this reliance on you know the whole package ecosystem in making sure that those resources are secure and your talk was like perfect timing as far as like oh my god this is like really consolidating all those ideas in one place. So I'm very excited about having you on to talk about it. And Dan noticed it and I was like, oh, yes, we, <laughs> I should really check it out. So I know I kind of built it up there, but I'm really excited about the idea of sort of like, okay, well, how does a Python developer ensure the security of their applications and, and kind of dive into not only that, but like what are the types of attacks that kind of happen? And so it's kind of a vast... <laughs> yeah. Subject, I know. So,
1: it, oh, I mean, it's really interesting this like slice of time that we're talking about this, right? Because this is something that, you know, I've been thinking about as a maintainer of a Python package index for a while. And a lot of other folks in the security sphere have been thinking about, you know, open source software supply security, but it's just now become like super relevant, right? Like a, a lot of people are, like, are sort of having this dawning realization that, oh, right. Like, there's a lot of implicit trust here that maybe I'm taking for granted and maybe like not a great, you know, folks don't have a great understanding of how a lot of the the tooling and the ecosystem works as well. So yeah, I mean, this is a talk I could have written three or four years ago. I don't think it would have been as interesting to folks until now. Right. Right. You know, based on recent stuff on the news.
0: <laughs> yeah. Very much hot button kind of like timing. And, and again, even before, you know, even the super recent stuff, like it just kind of has been sort of a uh, snowballing as a topic. Uh, you touched on like one of the things with the, a, a maintainer of one of those JavaScript libraries. And I remember that from a few years back of like, you know, okay, well, you know, what can I rely on? Right.
1: Right. <laughs> and yeah. Things I mean, like that. I think that you, I think you're describing left pad. And I think that was really the, kind of the first time in like recent history that a lot of people were made aware like, Oh, like I can't just assume everything on a package index is going to always be there. Yeah. I mean, that's that's our ultimate goal with PyPI is that like all the software on there will be there forever, but we don't have control over the individual maintainers and that, you know, and that that software is going to work great too, right? I mean, you're, you're just sort of hoping <laughs> and trusting.
0: Yeah. I guess one of the ideas that I, I wonder about is do I need to be a security expert to, you know, even really kind of think about this topic. Are there ways that I can kind of approach this topic in this, this area of security for my own projects where I don't necessarily need to be this expert of security?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, no, I don't, there's this whole notion of shifting left on security, which just all that means is, you know, it's, it's not the job of the person at the end of the pipeline who's receiving or deploying the software to think about whether, after everything that's been done to it, it's secure. it's the job of the developer, you know, the more that the developer can internalize a security mindset when writing software or pulling in new dependencies, the the more secure their software will be. And it doesn't mean that every developer needs to be a security expert, um, but I think it does mean they need to have an understanding of, of what their supply chain is. Like, where is the software I'm depending on coming from? Uh, how can I do some rudimentary verification. That is actually what I think it is, you
0: know? Yeah. So I wonder if if tackling it in in an order that's similar to what you did in your talk would be good. We could kind of expound upon areas that you feel like you you could kind of elaborate a little bit more uh, in this longer <laughs> format yeah. of a podcast, um, as opposed to like having to have such a tight thing for, for a, a talk at, at something like a conference. Yeah. So... Maybe we could start with like okay what are the t- types of attacks that people might be familiar with or maybe some that they're not familiar with one that we touched on right away on the show already was typo squatting from one of the stories that was uh, out there recently too
1: Yeah typo squatting is like something that was happening for a while on PyPI and you know the idea of the attack is that someone could potentially create a python package that either resembles or you know the name is close to something that you might manually type on the command line and you might install something that you're not intending to install
0: yeah you gave an example of a Uh, of like potential foreign spelling of requests or something.
1: Uh, yeah, requests or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Like, so, okay, it's the French version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what have I'm, you?
1: It's it's not hard to find these, right? Like they exist. A lot of them are people trying to, that maybe they have typed that typo themselves and they're like, oh, this is not good. I should squat on this. And that's fine. Occasionally people are trying to extract your cryptocurrency wallet or something via that. I don't think it's a really, I mean, it's a valid, form of attack and you should be aware of it and that there are things you can do to try to avoid it but i, I don't think like this is a, really a class of attack that's really going to compromise anyone because at the end of the day like when you go to try and use the request library for example and you install request days and it doesn't actually work like you're gonna you're not going to deploy that right it's not going to become part of your production software
0: not gonna go out into the wild, hopefully yeah. it just would have been on your machine for a little bit until you like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> said whoops. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so I mean the, the way to avoid type of squatting and, and we have some features in the pipeline that we're sort of thinking about for PyPI that would either you know help help reduce the amount of potential for type of squats or allow people to have a little more control over what they're manually installing. But the, the solution is just don't be manually typing, you know, pip install whatever on your command line, right? especially if you're developing software, you know, put it in a requirements.txt file, ensure that you type the right thing before you go to install it and, you know, do some verification there. There's other things to do as well, but yeah, we can talk about some other attacks as well.
0: Yeah, I think they're going to, the, all these things are going to kind of amplify toward toward those ideas, you know, the idea of pinning and stuff like that. Yeah. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring designed to help developers quickly find and fix performance issues before the customer ever sees them. Scout APM pinpoints and resolves performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, memory bloat, and more. So you can spend less time debugging and more time building a great product. With developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, get the insights you need in less than four minutes without dealing with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. You can rest easy knowing Scouts on Watch to help you resolve performance issues with Scouts' real-time alerting and weekly digest emails. Start your free 14-day trial today, and as an added bonus for RealPython listeners, Scout APM will donate $5 to the open-source project of your choice when you deploy. You can sign up today at ScoutAPM.com RealPython. That's ScoutAPM.com RealPython. Another area that was, again, another recent news thing was this idea of, and this is something that I had heard, like I went to a, a local meetup, and you know, Python user group meeting here in Colorado Springs. Shout out to Pi Springs. <laughs> <laughs> and so those guys, a bunch of them work for fairly large companies, you know, either locally or, or remotely. And they kept kind of talking about like kind of internal repositories. And I I had not been in that situation before, where like I was never at like a, a large enough organization, or even one that was like enough embedded into the Python ecosystem that we would, if you will, maintain our own little uh, local. And I'm I'm going to get the word wording wrong, but like you know, like a local repository that that people are going to install from in house, as opposed to it going out to the web and grabbing yeah. versions. And is am I getting that terminology right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would call that like a internal Python repository
0: or something like that. Okay, and and that was a recent issue, right? That was yeah. up in the news.
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's that's super common, right? For especially for large organizations that have a lot of uh, Python software that they don't want to make open source for you know whatever reason. There's plenty of valid reasons not to. What they'll do is they'll they'll host a python repository internally either manually there's a lot of tools like devpy that will allow you to host that yourself or there's a lot of third-party products that give you like basically private repositories and you can configure pip in a way that like because those internal projects and uh, packages that don't exist in isolation from the rest of PyPI, right they sort of usually depend on public third-party open source python packages so
0: it would be like a large majority like a Percentage-wise would be a lot of, you know, existing packages that are on PyPI, uh, along with a handful of other things that yeah. that they've developed internally.
1: Yeah, usually. So, like, what you need to do is basically configure PIP in a way that, you know, I have all these public packages that are dependencies of my application. I have all these internal packages. I put them all together in a requirements file, and then PIP is configured in a way that it can look at multiple indexes and determine where it should install the you know requested software from based on what's available in an index. So I would have like my internal package name on my internal index and I'd have requests or whatever on the external uh, on PyPI. And this dependency confusion attack that was fairly big news and compromised a lot of organizations basically came down to a misconfiguration. Hmm. By default, you can configure pip in a way that it weighs the internal and you know, external PyPI index equally. So it's, it's unclear, you know, where it should install a package from if the package name exists on both. And a lot of times it might be PyPI. So what this security researcher hacker person did was did a lot of work to determine what package names these companies were using internally, you know, cause they had leaked these in some way hmm. and then went and registered them on PyPI. And, uh, When they went to redeploy their software, it got pulled from PyPI in their compromised packages instead of internally. And, you know, then they were compromised.
0: Wow. I would guess some of those things that they were working on, the end applications or uh, projects, would have been maintained internally. But in some cases, they might have been using like GitHub or other uh, things that were out there, other places where they would have been sharing their code. And the researcher was able to find. Yeah. um, what was being imported, where, and so forth?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or like, I mean, there were lots of ways, I guess, they did this. But, you know, basically, this was leaked somehow. And, and, and you know, th- there's a fairly easy way to avoid this, which is, you know, PIP, by default, when you ask it to install just a package name, it will install the latest version, right? So yeah. if this researcher was installing, you know, putting a version that was higher on PyPI, it's going to go and install that version. But, you know, PIP also has all these features to ensure that like the file that you are installing is actually this file that you had originally requested. So part of that is is pinning to a specific version, right? Like don't let yourself just blindly get updated to the latest version. You know, that's probably gonna break you anyway with breaking changes and things like that.
0: Right, right.
1: <laughs> but there's also hashes, right? So you know PyPI publishes file hashes for every single dependency on it. And you can do the same for your internal index, and then you can configure pip to say, you know, only install this dependency if the hash matches. And if if these companies had been doing hash verification, then you know this just wouldn't have happened. Pip would have just said, nope, I'm not going to install that. The hash doesn't match. This is some other file that I've never seen before. You haven't told me about, and it will just fail. And you know, you wouldn't be compromised.
0: So I, I saw that in your talk, but I have not experienced it. I don't know what the steps are in the sense, or maybe I'm asking more for like, is there a resource that you know of like, okay, these are the steps you need to do to to start, you know, doing this within your organization or on your project. If you wanted to start using that, is that something that's explained well? at um, on like PyPI, you
1: know, I'd recommend basically all, you know, all of this boils down to best practices for, you know, declaring and installing your dependencies. And I think if you're not using something that's a lock file, so like, PipM, for example, uses lock files. Okay. Po- Poetry is an installer that uses lock files. And, and Pip itself, like you can configure your requirements.txt file in a way that it resembles a lock file, right? It has version pins, it has hashes, and it has the full dependency tree, every single dependency and subdependency dependency uh, included in that file that that should be installed. Okay. Um, so there's a really nice tool that I like to use. And that this is actually what we use for. PyPI's dependencies as well, because it's a web application that we deploy. It's called pip, pip compile, and it's part of the pip tools package. And, you know, basically it lets you define this like bare requirements file that you just list all your top level dependencies with no versions, just the you know project name. And then it compiles it. It goes and figures out, you know, okay, what's the latest version of this? What are the sub-dependencies of this and its latest version? And then what are the hashes for all of these? And it produces this requirements.txt file that, PIP can just consume, but it has, like I said, the version pins, the hashes, and the the full dependency tree, right? Those are the important things. Yeah. So that just basically ensures that, you know, everything that when I can, you know, compile those dependencies that that was available and that I intended to install, that's all that can actually be installed. Nothing else can be surreptitiously installed as part of my Python dependency installation.
0: Nice. And so that requirements file, do you need to use, I mean, can you just simply use PIP? install you know dash r and and it would read that and and configure it in a way that it would you know look at the hashes and and pull the you know not only the pinned versions of the files but do the the secure check of like okay this is the one i'm actually looking for
1: yeah yeah absolutely okay and you know you, you sort of mentioned cryptography like this isn't like a cryptographic signature right? it's a hash so you have to trust that the hash that you got from pypi when you were, you know, first compiling your dependencies is, is, is right. Like you weren't somehow middleman or PyPI wasn't compromised, but, you know, all of this is like making, trying to make less and less assumptions. So like, you're still going to be making assumptions, but um, now we sort of assume that we don't have to assume that what we're installing or not pinning is the, uh, is what we actually
0: intended to install. We can verify. Okay. So that, that sounds like a nice like tool to kind of just help start to kind of look at, okay, (laughs) ways that an individual, you know, working on a project can like not only get the correctly pinned versions, but the hashes. Um, so pip compile sounds like a nice tool there, you know, again, trying to to, like avoid like becoming a complete security expert. Are there uh, additional things there like, um, that you can think of that, that would help in, in this fight against potential, like in this case, the, the dependency squatting or typo squatting,
1: yeah, I mean, so uh, one thing that I'd, I'd recommend for folks is, you know, it's like the question of, all right, so I've pinned all my dependencies, I know what dependencies I'm using, I, like how am I supposed to know if they someday get compromised, right? And, you know, you, it, I, I, you, it's, it's too much to expect every developer to audit every line of code for every dependency that they introduce, right? There has to be some trust that, Either the community, other folks in the community, are assisting with that, helping with that, or that the maintainers themselves are doing that, right? But the question is, like, well, so how do we, how do we know when you know, if there's been a problem, there's uh, a bug or something that could introduce a compromise? So, I mean, one thing you don't need to be a security researcher to do is turn on vulnerability notifications. So, there's lots of third party tools um, like. PyUp is a tool that is specifically for the Python ecosystem. Dependabot is now integrated into GitHub, putting on my Google hat, like Google has vulnerability scanning as well. Uh, All these tools will basically either look at your GitHub repo, look at your container image, and determine if you're using a dependency in there that is known to be compromised, right? That there's been a vulnerability report published and there's a problem and you need to upgrade.
0: I've seen that um, before, even with Projects where I'm sort of dabbling around, you know, like I was working through like some Django tutorials and going through some different stuff. And so I, you know, I had you know, saved that information up on, on GitHub and I started to get those emails and it's like, Hey, you know, Django two point, whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, you should look at, you should look up uh, updating this and so forth. And, you know, it's kind of surprising how many emails I got just you know, regarding <laughs> that one file, yeah. which is cool. You know, it's good that that's there.
1: Well, that makes me nervous to hear you say that you got a lot of emails, right? Because one thing that we don't want to happen here is that you're just getting notification fatigue, right? Like you're being told about all these vulnerabilities that, you know, maybe as a human, you can look at it and be like, oh, well, I'm not actually using that. Or like, you know, a lot of times, like for PyPI, we'll get vulnerability notifications for our JavaScript dependencies, but we only use JavaScript to like compile our static assets. It's not a production dependency on any of those. So, you know, I, I ignore those, but they, I get all this emails, right? So I think one thing that we still haven't quite figured out is like, you know, how can we ensure that the, there's not too much noise here and that there's a good signal?
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, kind of going back to, uh, and it seems to be a bit of a theme, the idea <laughs> of, I don't even know what I don't know <laughs> and sort of decreasing the area of that (laughs) like it's just such a a a spanning kind of area that we can like even think about we've we've talked about a handful of additional things there i I wonder like are there places where someone can learn about more of these potential problems and and stay on top of it like are, are there like blogs or you know websites or people that you would follow that Keep you on top of some of the stuff that's happening. I don't even know where to look for that.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I I think we're, and and this is actually one of the things I highlighted in my talk. Like, I think we kind of aren't serving the community well enough here. We have a really nice user guide for Python packaging at packaging.python.org. And, you know, it's great for like if you want to publish a package, if you want to like do X, Y, and Z. It doesn't really talk about supply chain security or anything like that. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, what I'd consider best practices here that we could stand to be opinionated about, and we can put those in a place that's a good resource for the community. But yeah, it's not there. And you know, like you can piecemeal together. You can like follow me on Twitter, and I'll talk about this stuff. You can follow other folks in IPA or just just generally security researchers in the area. But yeah, I don't think any of them are going like, to provide you with like individualized guidance for you know what you should do for your project or application. So. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're underserving the
0: community there a little bit. Okay, well, we'll try to keep watching that space and <laughs> yeah. uh, keep keep alerting people to some new tools there. We talked about like three different types of supply chain attacks. Um, you have one in in your talk that I, I wasn't that familiar with, and maybe I'm I don't know. Were there other compromises that you were hitting there that that we didn't touch on? I, I think we kind of touched on the idea of hashed versions. Yeah but not necessarily the man in the middle?
1: Right, yeah. Well, I mean, the man in the middle is just the assumption that, you know, someone could get between you and PyPI and compromise you. Now that we have TLS and, like, HTTPS, you, you know, it's less likely. I don't think it's going to happen. But there was a point at which PyPI was, you could you could be installing over HTTP and you could be somehow getting man in the middle or, or someone could be intercepting your traffic and modifying it. It's less of a concern. Now, I think the other two that I highlighted in the talk are you know, things I can't really give you advice for fixing, right? One of them, uh, I was talking about how recently the Linux kernel developers banned folks from the University of Minnesota, because they were intentionally trying to introduce vulnerabilities or compromises, or at least I think that's how it was perceived, what they were doing. <laughs> and like, yeah, I, what I basically said was, you know, there's nothing you can really do to protect yourself against compromise maintainers, right? Like, the maintainers of your package might be working for a three-letter agency. They might be, uh, you know, not have your best interests in mind, and there's not a whole lot you can do to protect yourself from that. Besides, like hoping that the review process and uh, you know, handing off control for maintainership of different projects is is done uh, in a way that ensures that the project remains secure.
0: And part of that is maybe those things would bubble up by the popularity of the package? Like, there'd be more eyes on it or the usage of it? Yeah, and that's
1: what you would hope. I mean, that's a good argument for using stuff that's, you know, widely supported and established
0: in the community. Okay.
1: The other one I highlighted that I called getting solar winded, which I think is, you know, solar winds was the compromise that really brought secure supply chains into the, you know, into the light for a lot of uh, organizations, I think, and, and now we have, like, an executive order <laughs> about uh, at least in the us we have this about you know all the, what we need to do to have secure supply chains uh here and for government work and you know that that was uh, that was a nation state right like th- there's you know you yeah. listening to this podcast and there's almost nothing you can do to protect yourself from that uh and, and at the end of the day like that was not even like compromised software it was a compromised build system it was like a bad password it was you know like kind of rudimentary stuff it wasn't like crazy established hacking you know so yeah yeah just just best practices everywhere and and improving that uh, generally would go a long way there
0: yeah okay so what i was wondering about then maybe we could kind of dive into the tools that that you like to use you mentioned some for you know, projects that I'm deploying. Um, Maybe I'm making, you know, software for my business or what have you and applications for end users. But there's then the side of like creating things that are going to be, you know, used by others, like kind of contributing packages to the index that are potentially, you know, going to be used, you know, by other developers and, and so forth. Are there things that that we need to go a little further to think about um, if you're going to be involved in the the packaging side of things, like actually packaging stuff up yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think, you know, if you're just a consumer of software, get yourself a lock file, right? I don't really care what installer you're using, just ensure that you're doing lock files with it. So it could be pipem, it could be poetry, it could be pip itself, but, you know, use them in a way that allows you to to define the lock file and, you know, and turn on uh, hash verification and all that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this, there's a lot, there's lot a lot that's suggested here, right? Like there's a lot of ideas for ways that we can make this better. One thing that folks bring up a lot is like, well, what if we just cryptographically signed every package on PyPI and then, you know, when you're installing it, you can verify that signature and you'll know it's legit. And, you know, sort of like in that small little description of it, yeah, that sounds great but the problem is like at the end of the day it's it's hard for users to use a lot of these package signing tools or you know pgp or or what, what have you and they're not super user friendly but you also this you're just sort of like shifting this trust around right hmm. you go from you know trusting that the package that you've gotten is been uploaded by the right person to trusting that the signature that you're trying to verify was signed by the right person right and you know pgp has this whole web of trust and you know it 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 gets complicated it's it's not it's not a end all be all solution to this we are working and i say we as like pypi maintainers and folks working in python packaging working on introducing the update framework to pypi and what this means is that pypi itself would sign the files that are hosted on it and pip would be able to cryptographically verify that signature so that you would know it actually came from PyPI. Okay. And then that could always, you know, it go a step further, but the problem is always, you know, who are you trusting? Like, okay, I can trust PyPI, kind of trust the individuals uploading. Hmm. Another thing that folks like to, you know, bring up is like, all right, we just we need to start reviewing everything that's published on PyPI, right? We need to audit it. We need to, like, curate it. We need to say, here's a set of known secure packages. And that works for some, you know, there are language ecosystems that do that, right? Um,
0: Well, I think of, like, just, like, kind of, uh, it's removed from it, but, you know, it it also in the news is Apple, you know, and their whole big lawsuit with Epic and so forth. And yeah, they're this massive... Organization, but still and they have like you know not only the the money and potentially the people to review every single application that you know can be put into their ecosystem and they say that they do, but still you know the whatever point zero zero one percent that gets through, there's still scams, there's still other kinds of bad actors that are that are there with that kind of you know monetary size from like this huge corporation one of the biggest corporations in the world. And and now we're talking about like this, you know, community funded <laughs> organization, <laughs> yeah. not, not to, to belittle it at all. No. You know, like what you're doing is amazing, but like, it's a whole other scale, you know, it, but it's still a huge amount of like packages that are coming through. And you know, the amount of projects that are on PYPI are huge. Like, uh, I'd like to talk about that a little bit too, if we can later, but
1: yeah, it's just not, it's just not feasible. Right. I mean, there's so many projects on PyPI. And then on top of that, like, the reason PyPI is successful, right, is because it is easy for anyone to publish software there. I mean, this would be like saying, okay, like, we can't trust anything on GitHub. We need to review everything before someone, you know, opens it to create a new (laughs) roster on GitHub, right? Like, GitHub (laughs) wouldn't work, right? Right. So it's the same for PyPI. And, and, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that it's a community organization, right? Like, we are a volunteer project of a nonprofit. And, you know, even... A for-profit company like npm, who's owned by Microsoft, like I don't even think they have the resources to do this, and their ecosystem is roughly the same size, right? Right. So you know, yeah, it'd be great if you really want this, do it yourself. You know, like you start fully auditing your your know dependencies and tell us what you find. But yeah, it's just it's almost just not feasible. You know,
0: is that is that feasible? Well, not feasible. Is it? Is that sort of what people do when they? are creating their private repository in a sense that they they they've done their own smoke test style audit, you know, that that they've brought this version in and, and we've worked with it so far and you know ran our other <laughs> vulnerability tools on it. And we can say the this version was safe at the time that we <laughs> yeah. put it in our own repo. Is that kind of like that a little bit?
1: You know, I, I hope so. <laughs> I, I <laughs> okay. I'll give you a little insight into like and so I mentioned before that like internally at Google, we do things a little bit differently with Python, just software development in general. And, you know, I think a lot of folks know about the Google monorepo, which is that like literally all the source code for all of everything at Google is in a single repository. And what that means is like if you're working on a Python project internally at Google, and we have a lot of those, uh, and you want to depend on third-party code that's on PyPI, right? It needs to be in the monorepo. We don't actually ever reach out to PyPI to install it for our you know, internal tools and, and projects. So what happens is in the monorepo, we have a vendored version of that open source code sits in the monorepo. And every time there's a new version, someone has to go update that vendor dependency, You know, literally like copy and paste the source code into the monorepo, but then go everywhere where it's used in like every tool across Google and ensure that they can now upgrade. And, and the nice thing is we have really robust testing tools like this is not okay a ton of work at the end of the day well actually i don't know if i can say that with confidence because i don't ever have to do this but <laughs> i must it happens you know it, it's it's a it's a well-oiled machine so but you know in that way like we are essentially we have a curated subset of ipi that we have audited to the extent that you know we deem necessary to include it as part of them our monorepo and so i hope other I hope other organizations are doing something similar, right? And that they're at least like looking at the change log to see if it's going to break them, or you know, sort of help trying to review like where the project's at if it's being maintained or not.
0: Yeah, I, you know, not that I want to get in the blame game, but I wonder if there's a name attached <laughs> in that log of like the person who like sat through doing that. If they're going to, you know, be questioned <laughs> if well, something yeah. goes wrong. so uh, we, yeah. we also
1: have like a, a blameless, you know, postmortem culture here at Google. So oh, that's good. I, okay, I don't think good. that would happen, yeah. But, but yeah.
0: This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. I felt like it would be a good fit based on this week's topic. It's called A Beginner's Guide to PIP. It's based on a RealPython article by Isaac Rodriguez. And in the course, instructor Austin Sapalia covers the fundamentals of PIP the Standard Package Manager for Python. Learning how to use PIP starts with installing and managing additional packages that are not part of the Python standard library, but also includes much more. In this video course, you'll learn about how to find packages published on the Python Package Index, PyPI, managing requirements for your scripts and applications, how to pin dependencies and work with requirements files, and uninstalling packages and their dependencies. I think it's a worthy investment of your time. This course is a great introduction to PIP, for those who are just getting started in Python, and for those of you who want to understand more about what is happening when you install new packages into your environment. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com.
1: There's some other like ecosystem things that we can do. I mentioned the update framework and you know that's in progress right now. Another thing I mentioned before when we were talking about squatting, like we've talked for a long time about introducing namespaces on PyPI. So it's sort of similar to on GitHub where you have an uh, organization and then there's repositories within that. PyPI is sort of a flat namespace, right? Like anyone can publish a project that starts with you know anything that they want. So adding a little bit of restriction there, I think would go a long way for helping folks feel confident that software they're installing is actually coming from a given organization or, you know, group of maintainers or something like that.
0: What would that look like? Like, how would that change, you know, from the end user's perspective, or would it be more of a change, you know, on your guys' end or um, somebody submitting?
1: Yeah, we're still sort of thinking through it a little bit. I mean, I think it sort of implicitly happens now. Like, for example, Google Cloud publishes a lot of client libraries for, you know, interacting with our API services from Python, and, you know, we prefix those on PyPI with Google-Cloud-, you know, whatever. Okay. And, you know, that, that happens implicitly for a lot, like, you know, uh, AWS does, does similar things. The, the change would be, you know, adding the restriction that, okay, you can only publish this package that starts with Google if you're part of this organization that is oh, okay you know, that owns that yeah. namespace right and so on so like individuals would own their their usernames as namespaces and then yeah, you know, it would sort of go from there so i don't think mu- much would change at the end uh for the end user there'd just be this sort of extra little trust that like you know, this this project can only be owned by this
0: organization yeah and i've noticed the a few things kind of you know this is just as an end user kind of watching projects kind of I don't know, get embraced kind of brought into, um, one was requests over the last two years, like watching it kind of move from, you know, a particular banner under GitHub to, you know, being PSF slash requests and black being another one. Is that, I'm kind of wondering what that means in a sense, like, is that like a vetting process or like a, 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 like a, a support process? Like, I don't know if you can speak to that specifically.
1: Yeah, sure. So, so you're mentioning a couple of projects that were brought under the PSF organization, and you know, I actually I wasn't really involved in that process, but I think generally, you know, those are projects that are widely depended on by the ecosystem and and the community, and we want to ensure that basically they receive a little extra support by the PSF itself, right? So, this is you know, partially this is ensuring that we don't have like a left pad scenario where someone can go rogue and, like, wipe requests off the map. I don't know if, like, moving into the PSF organization it, it really protects us from that, but it's a step, like, in that direction of, like, well, this is more community-maintained than maintained by an individual, right? Like, in the case of Black, like, that that was Ukash's project, and he, you know, he wanted it to be more of a community project, so, so it was moved. In terms of, like, the Python Packaging Authority, right, we have a similar organization on GitHub, And, you know, we recently introduced governance changes that allow us to, you know, ensure that we have the ability to adopt projects into that organization um, that we deem, like, worthy of a little extra support and can be sort of thought of as a community project. Um, So we brought in two projects recently. One was PIPX, which allows you to sort of execute any package on PyPI as an as a application um, in like a nice single command. The other was this project CI build wheel, which allows you to sort of, as a publisher, build lots of different distributions for your, your Python package before you publish it. And, you know, both of these were projects that like were successful and individually maintained. But, you know, as a project at the PSF, it means, or as a, as a project of the PyPI, it means that, you know, they get to use our resources, right? Like they're they're in our GitHub repo, they get to use our, you know, GitHub actions and Travis CI accounts and that kind of stuff. But also that, you know, there's this implicit idea that like, this is a project of the PyPA, if all the existing maintainers go away, we've sort of like, said, we'll support this, like we'll ensure that this sticks around this is important enough to continue to exist even if individuals go away.
0: Yeah. Which, it's great. Yeah, we talked about PipX on the, the show a couple weeks ago. So, and that development was in the news. So that's great.
1: I mean, the last thing I'll say with res- regards to security, like, I think the thing I've seen have the biggest effect here over the last couple of years is organizations stepping up to provide funding for really specific projects, right? We have a, you know, at, in the PyPA, as PiPA maintainers, we have a pretty good idea of what we need to do, right? Like, we have a sense of a roadmap. What we don't have is a lot of volunteer time. And one thing that helps there is when organizations come along and offer to support us either by allowing us to hire contractors or project managers or doing UI UX studies. Um, Like for example, we just did the whole, when Pip's new resolver rolled out, we did a UX study to understand like how users are actually going to experience this. And like, we've never done that before.
0: It was fun to talk to the people involved, uh, come on the show and talk about it. It was really fun to talk about that whole thing and, idea of like the user experience of, of PIP is, is really kind of a cool thing that they were able to invest that time and, you know, through the funding.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just, I, we are, you know, getting more and more support there. I'd love to see more continued support and, and focus on specific projects because, uh, yeah, it's really, it's done great things. Like that's why we have a new PIPI PI now. That's why PIP's Resolver works a lot better than it used to. All those kind of things.
0: Yeah, I'm actually thinking about it was a Georgia Bullen and um, Sumina, um, and and I'm thinking about having them come back on and and talk about you know like how that's all kind of fleshed out because we were right in the middle of it (laughs) where we were still asking for like uh, feedback and so forth. But I I think it's you know it's been working great.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was a great success. I mean, I really I love Futurama, and there's this line when is like floating through space and he meets god and god tells him like you know when you do things right uh, people don't think that you've done anything at all and
0: <laughs> right
1: yeah i think that's so true and, and just all whole software right like when you do things right uh it just seems like nothing's changed right but yeah there's these like small improvements happening all along the way yeah i think that's a good example
0: yeah as a, a music person uh who's been on the other side you know being an engineer or even, like, messing around in video, like, you know, the the average person never thinks about the editor, <laughs> you know, or the person who's, like, mixing the music and making all those kind of things happen, and hopefully what they're doing does not stand out in a way, you know, exactly. that, that you think about them, that they're not getting in the way of the story. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, and that's <laughs> not to say that, like, it was completely, like, bump-free rollout, but I do think it was a success,
0: yeah. Right. This article that you uh put out in april that sort of dove into the idea of like okay what what's it take to power the python package indexed you want to talk about that a little bit then
1: yeah i mean i think this so this article was an equivalent one was originally written about five years ago by donald who i was talking about before and yeah okay you know at the time pipe was you know still it was pretty popular we were getting a lot of traffic i was inspired to update this article because i don't know if it was on the orange website or on twitter but i think some folks were trying to like kind of make an estimate for you know the the size of the traffic that PyPI gets and what it would cost and they were off i mean they were off by a lot like a almost an order of magnitude and okay. you know i was like this is such a this just it happens all the time that folks really kind of underestimate what it takes to power stuff like this and i think i think we all do right like right it, you know one of the first things they do when you, you start at Google is they sit you down in this, like, orientation, and one of the uh, courses they give you, their classes or presentations they show is, like, you know, b- basically, like, how many computers do we have? Like, what does it actually take? And it's <laughs> absolutely mind-blowing, right? It's so much more than you think. And I think it's just, you know, when technology feels like magic, we don't think about everything that goes into it. So, like, yeah, PyPI is... Uh, handles a lot of requests and transfers a lot of bandwidth and you know we don't actually pay for that because we have a really generous sponsor fastly but if we did it would be you know i think we're almost at probably a, like if we're paying market value for our bandwidth it would be like almost a two million dollar a month bill
0: oh my gosh yeah yeah and i, I would imagine that that's not the amount of uh, donations that are coming in <laughs> no not <even laughs> to <close>. fund it <laughs>
1: I, yeah i yeah. mean I, well so i mean depends on what you consider donation right like individuals donating no i mean it's a it's a very small drop in the bucket and we appreciate those right. donations they help us do some interesting stuff but organizations i mean kind of yeah we we have great support from our sponsors with the psf and that it goes it helps right it helps us pay some of the bills here but you know if tomorrow fastly decided uh yeah, you know, we're we're done supporting open source now yeah it's a bit of an existential crisis for 5PI I'm not really sure what we do probably try to find another sponsor
0: and that's done partly because they're the CDN right is that correctly right I think yeah, they were they're in the news recently too unfortunately
1: yeah uh, they were
0: negatively or positively I think this the spin has been kind of good like how fast they were able to react to uh, that outage recently
1: so. yeah I, I've you know they, they've been a great partner and a great technology for us to use and you know I I see a lot of blips. You know, when when you get as much traffic as PyPI, you sort of get a good sense of when they're having problems. Uh and they're always resolved really fast. So, you know, it, it definitely made the news, but I think they they're a world class organization. So they did a great job. Yeah, cool. But yeah, I mean that's really that's also like you know if we're talking about powering PyPI, that's the bandwidth is that's part of it, right? But we right. that doesn't include compute File storage like IPi is basically a big um, bucket of files at the end of the day that you know has a couple of web APIs around it and you know that that costs money to to host as well and and it's growing like especially we have more and more more and more folks publishing on PyPI, which is great and we also have more and more projects that are getting bigger and bigger in terms of file size right we have these large projects that you know, are for GPU architectures that ship a lot of binary data with them and they they consume a lot of the space like a significant amount of the space
0: on pipe yeah is that something like like the nvidia cuda kind of stuff yeah
1: or, yeah, yeah exactly a lot a lot of it that and machine learning frameworks um and uh, you know there are some more and more projects that ship like big ml models with them as well for various reasons and you know, all totally valid reasons right like there's kind of not a better way to do any of this right but it does you know mean that our our size on disk is constantly growing
0: yeah some of these projects you're you kind of need like the the leg up <laughs> to to kind of get started on a lot of that stuff so that i guess that makes sense yeah um and they're they're doing important stuff so cool Are there other areas you wanted to touch on uh, um, from that yeah i mean we've always had a lot of good uh,
1: support for infrastructure for pypi i think the things that really changed in the last five years were kind of twofold one we have a lot more people working on it now, right? Like you mentioned, Sumana. Yeah. Before she's sort of our de facto project manager for a lot of the projects that we've done in, over the last couple of years. We have more maintainers. We have a whole team of moderators that are responsible for sort of triaging user requests, and and we also just have like I think we just have more contributors as well. Like there are folks that just have come along and helped help contribute, make changes, do features, and that's been just great to see increase over the last you know five years or so. And I think the biggest delta though is the amount of funding that we've been able to bring in specifically for development for PyPI, right? This sort of started in like 2017, not long after I'd started working on this like prototype PyPI that, that I had discovered. Yeah. We got a a nice big grant from the Mozilla Open Source Support. Um, project. And that allowed us to basically take that prototype and turn it into PyPI itself, right? Like, do a bunch of feature parity development and actually do the deployment. And from there we just sort of, like, snowballed that into, like, okay, well, where else can we apply for grants? And, like, we've got this laundry list of things that we need to fix. So we were able to add uh, localization, internationalization to PyPI. So PyPI is like, in I think 11 languages now, including Esperanto, which is funny to me, but like, how could I say no to to a (laughs) request for Esperanto? Like, sure, why not? Sure. (laughs) Uh, Facebook's been a great partner, too. We did um, some malware detection work with them, and they're also working on the update framework work that I mentioned before. And then like, lately, actually, the like, most exciting thing is we've got support from Google and Bloomberg to actually hire staff. So like, yeah. Google has contributed money. We're hiring a Python developer in residence. I say we, the PSF is hiring a developer in residence for, for Python, And then we're hiring a project manager with support from Bloomberg for the package ecosystem, which is like incredible because there's so many volunteers. We have, you know, PSF, ha- PSF has staff that um, their responsibility is is working on PyPI. But in terms of like project management, you know, having another person here to sort of oversee the project, look, you know, ensure that you know, we can do things with grants, it's going to be fantastic.
0: I think that like level of continuity you would get with a full time person in that sort of management role or the developer role that you mentioned also just is a, a form of glue that is going to be missing for you know a lot of people that have like okay this is my pocket of time i have now and coming back and just like you know just as a human being just like you know context switching in my own life and like okay where were we at yeah (laughs) you know is that i think is going to be huge for you guys like just you know for the whole ecosystem so i'm I'm very excited by that and i'm i don't know i feel like there's i don't know it's been like a rush of like kind of good news in a lot of ways you know i know we kind of started this whole podcast on like kind of like a a very cautious (laughs) note of like security but like the ecosystem is really if anything has made me like really excited about you know like these developments it's really kind of a nice change yeah as far as the news.
1: <laughs> yeah. We have been working hard on it. And, you know, I think, you know, not everything is obvious at first, but we're trying to make it as reliable and secure as it could possibly be and you know, focus on its long term sustainability. Right. We we want PyPI to be around for a really long time. Like everything we do, every feature request, every you know, thing that we consider when we change it or modify it or update it or whatever the biggest thing we think about is like all right how is this going to be sustainable for the long term you know not over the next year or five years but like yeah it's going to pipeline's going to be around for a long time right we want to ensure that that everything is sustainable and it continues to exist throughout that
0: lifetime yeah great well i have a couple like weekly questions i like to ask everybody cool yeah so the the first one is, what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python? I know we've talked a lot about that uh, across the board today, but this could be like a specific event or book or package or what have you. Mm. Let me think about that for a second.
1: Yeah, I, I think the thing I'm most excited to see is how widespread Python is becoming, right? I was introduced to Python very early in its lifetime. And, you know, I think in one, some ways I was lucky that yeah you know, i was introduced to it then and got exposed to it then but i think a lot of people are sort of seeing a lot of value in it that i'd seen way back then and and also like it's it's serving as this fantastic tool for people to get into technology and into programming yeah. and and just everywhere right like of every age and every demographic and just seeing how much it's growing in places like africa or in south america is like I I, am thinking about how there's like there's like millions of Python developers that haven't met Python yet, but they're like about to come online, right? Like they're, they're so close (laughs) to being in our ecosystem and like, and I kind of just want to like, you know, tidy house, get it ready for them uh, because it's so exciting to me that that they're out there somewhere. We haven't met them yet, but they're, they're coming. And you know, Python is just at this point in, in its lifetime where it's, so popular that it's it's almost inevitable that we're just going to have such a blossoming of the ecosystem it's super exciting
0: yeah i'm excited to welcome them too you know like I, that's been one of the fun things about doing the show it's just you know meeting other people and trying to share like ways of like okay well these are ways that you could learn this and i agree with the idea of like <laughs> you know getting the house ready for more people to to join yeah that's cool. So what's something that you want to learn next? It doesn't have to be specifically Python, but what's something that you're interested in learning next?
1: You know, my work as an advocate at Google has brought me into this sphere of product development. And I think you know, as a before I you know worked at Google, I was working at a software consultancy and you know, we, and in some ways doing product development there too, right? We'd build these sort of like little one-off projects for our clients and you know, those were fairly successful, but I was a software engineer. I wasn't really thinking a lot about how these tools and products could, you know, how they're designed, how they could be useful and that kind of thing. I'm really interested in just learning how to build better tools, how to bring more empathy into the process of designing products and building software. You know, it's something I think that, like, I remember years ago, there's this software craftsmanship movement or folks who are really thinking about being, being, you know, kind of artisans and and craftsmen of, of software. And, you know, I think that's great and code is definitely art, but I think there's like a broader thing here about thinking about how ecosystems are built and how um, we define these standards that are supposed to be best practices and exist for, for a long time. And yeah, I'm I'm interested in, in, you know, just generally, being more thoughtful and gaining more knowledge about how to do that well.
0: Do you have resources that you can think of or like go to places that you would suggest if somebody else is interested in that path?
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm lucky because I'm learning from some really great folks uh, at Google that do product and tool development there. But yeah, as far as external resources, uh, I don't think I have one.
0: Okay. So this last one is one that I, I, I kind of bring in and out a lot, but being that you've Been working with Python for quite a while. I I thought it might be an appropriate one. So, what is something that you thought you knew or understood about Python, but you were wrong about it?
1: Oh, I mean, I feel like I experience this all the time. I, yeah, it's just it's it's so much more complex at the end of the day, and. You know, each time that someone asks me some sort of question, assuming I'm an expert on Python, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm reminded that I'm not. And I, I really don't consider myself an expert, especially core Python. Like, I'm not a core Python developer. I've written Python for a long time, but there are a lot of things about the ways that Python works, the underlying, you know, data structures and things like that, that I, I, I actually don't know. And so I'm, I'm often reminded of those when I see, like, I, I saw recently, like, I think it was David Beadsley was posting something on Twitter or Twitter about shared some like kind of mind numbing construction of Python syntax that produced this like result that made no sense. And
0: yeah, you
1: know, I actually I didn't I didn't understand what was happening. You know, I was like I thought I could read Python, but this is <laughs> super confusing. And it was, you know, almost by design that was the intention as a bit of a puzzle. But yeah, I mean it's it's just there's not just one thing. It's all the time I'm reminded uh <laughs> uh, things i don't know and that's fine
0: yeah no i think that's 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 true i think of all of us <laughs> if you're willing to admit it you know it's like there's so many you know just the landscape that we keep talking about of of python in general and you know the all the different packages that are out there but just inside the <laughs> language itself um it was like a meme recently like it's like this i don't know it's like a guy and a, some girl's like in a car or something like that and keeps asking him questions like you know, prove to me that you know this language or whatever. And it's just, so she says, okay, so you think you know Python? Well, you know, name a hundred packages. And then the <laughs> guy's like, the, the Python standard library? <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, you got me there. You know? Oh, yeah. That's <laughs>
1: no, set the bar too low or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: it's the meme or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, and that's the, you know, it's like, who, who knows all of the things that are in that, you know? And I've had uh, Brett Cannon on, and his whole project of unraveling and and kind of you know that idea of like what at the core are these these constructs inside there and that's been very interesting to follow and I haven't I got the book that we recently put out about the C Python internals and I'm still just starting to crack it and get into it you know I'm a little nervous because like I haven't done C in a long time <laughs> yeah so
1: yeah yeah you mentioned Brett like Brett has been these blog posts he does where he's like unraveling different parts of python have been so interesting and enlightening and yeah i mean every single one of those is something that i was like oh, i didn't really know that's the way that worked so uh yeah he's he's doing a great job there
0: yeah it's cool so this is something new that I'm, I'm trying to get better at doing at the end of the show but are the, if you'd like to would you like to share your social info and then do you have any sort of final shout outs that you want to uh, share with
1: them. yeah sure so on twitter i'm di underscore codes and I'd love for folks to follow me there and, and feel free to reach out and message me dms are open you know and my, my shout out my shout out is to you know everyone listening that is not a member of the python software foundation i think a lot of folks don't know that you can become a member for free and you can actually become a supporting member for 99 dollars a year and that gives you voting rights it means that you can vote in the uh, annual election for the board of directors. And you can also become a contributing member, which means that if you in any way work on something in the Python ecosystem for like five hours a month, you can self-certify and become a also a voting member. So I'd really love to see more members, especially folks throughout the diverse geographic areas of the Python community, join and become PSF members.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, it's it's kind of a unique thing that I think a lot of people don't know that it's like, you know, hey, you can, <laughs> you can become part of this um, and be a member. So, and, and there's some kind of interesting things that are, you know, connected to it, not only the voting, but just, uh, you know, giving back to the community that way too. Yeah. And just showing up and uh, showing your support, you know? Yeah. Cool. Well, Dustin, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you.
1: Thanks. I really appreciate you having me. Real Python is great. Uh, super happy to be here, and uh, yeah, good luck with the rest of the podcast.
0: Okay, thanks. And don't forget, you can start your 14-day trial today with Scout APM at scoutapm.com/realpython. I want to thank Dustin Ingram for coming on the show this week, and I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.